Welcome to the Profitable Farmer Podcast, where we share stories and tips to help you run a better farming business and create your very own freedom farm. If you're looking to work smarter and not harder in your farm business, welcome, you're in the right place. G'day everyone, let's get straight into this. In life, we have the opportunity to meet some amazing people as we track. And I am so excited about this podcast. When I was in my mid-20s after a cadetship with elders and then some time in corporate finance, I decided I want to get back into the bush and not deal with peanuts in suits in Sydney, but get back and deal with real people and look to help farming families and small business owners in regional Australia. And I landed in Bendigo and started working with two consulting companies, farm consulting companies. One was O'Callaghan Rural Management with Phil O'Callaghan. And the other one at the time was Mike Stevens and Associates in Ballarat. Now, I used to travel over once a week and spend two days at um, Yendon with Mike and the team at um, Mike Stevens and Associates. And without fail, Mike and his wife, Joe would have me stay with them and enjoy dinner with them every time I visited. And yeah, to me, Mike and Joe are just wonderful humans. In this podcast today, delighted to introduce you to Mike Stevens. Many of you will know Mike. He is a stalwart and a legend of the industry. Um, for me, one of the most amazing facilitators, educators, um, keynote speakers, almost comedians. He has so much humour. He is so charismatic. Um, he is so engaging. Um, one of the most compelling businessmen and one of the most impressive chairmen of businesses I have ever met. A poet, um, a very creative mind. Over the last few years, Mike has been awarded a Churchill Fellowship and he won that award with the only application to Churchill done in verse, so hence poet. Um, he is the author of the Michelago Meek, Meek Poet series of the yesteryear um, and he has more recently completed a PhD on succession. So Mike is the founder and chairman to Meridian Agriculture, which was Mike Stevens and Associates, without question, the largest ag consulting company in Victoria, at least, um, has an amazing team around Meridian Ag and is, for me, one of the leaders, if not the leader, on the topic of farm family alignment and succession in Australia. Um, I've come to know Mike over the years and regard him as a real mentor. Um, and as I said, a real stalwart of the industry. Ladies and gentlemen, please um, sit back and enjoy this as I get to connect once again with Mike Stevens. Mike, it's a real privilege for me to have you join us on Profitable Farmer podcast. Welcome. Thanks for having me, Jerry. Mike, would you mind just kicking us off with a bit of an overview of Meridian Ag? Where's that business now and you know, how do you reflect on its journey? 
Uh, Jeremy, we're about to have our 40th birthday. Um, we're a team of 15 or so uh, people, uh, some of those consultants and some of those people are in a support role, or, although all of the support people have direct client contact. And uh, so every, everybody in the company is, uh, uh, has got some sort of uh, client contact. We work mainly on our one-to-one -one work in, in Victoria, spilling over into southern New South Wales and into South Australia. And our one-to-one -one work is about half the work we do. The other work is uh, uh, contract uh, project work, which is national. We provide the Secretariat for the Southern Australian Livestock Research Council, which is made up of four state departments of agriculture, nine universities, Meat and Livestock Australia, Australian Wool Innovation, local land services, um, and uh, Animal Health Australia. Uh, and so we provide the secretariat for that. I'm its executive officer. Uh, we also provide the secretariat for a thing called the Wean Bee Foundation. And we're involved in a number of projects. I think our flagship project is probably the Livestock Consult Internship, which is a project where we're now in our fourth uh, lot of interns. Uh, they do a two-year internship. So we went to MLA with the notion that if we could put, uh, if we could get 10 or a dozen consulting companies together, livestock consulting companies nationally, uh, we would develop a program. We'd all put in some money and the donor company would put in some money and we'd run a, an internship. And we did that and we're now, we're now uh, intake number four has been going for about six months. So that's probably our, our flagship uh, uh, external project, but we do you know projects we bid for them and, and they're about pastures, uh, people, infrastructure. So it keeps us busy. I bet it does, as it always has. I reflect that I feel like I cut my teeth in consulting and in analysis and in people and strategy and all those things in my time with you, Mike, at Mike Stevens and Associates. Um, and I reflect on just how many amazing people I got to hang out with and learn from. Um, you know, you think about Nigel McGuckian and Rob Rendell and Jim Shovelton and Tim Hutchings and yourself. I mean, how do you reflect on the calibre of people that you have within Meridian and that you've sort of been able to sort of enjoy working with over the years? Well, we're look. We're we're privileged to have a, a, a team of uh, yeah, knowledgeable, experienced, uh, considered um, people. We try and keep on top of our game. Um, Jeremy, I don't I don't know any different. Uh, you know, we we people with a common interest and a common way of doing things. Uh, people who work with uh, evidence based decisions are inclined to drift towards one another and uh, are pretty pretty uh, adept at uh, pushing away people who who don't use those same sort of processes. That's not to say that we all think the same way. Uh, I've got a management uh, training. Some of our people have got a scientific training and management and scientific trainings can butt heads pretty severely. 
And that is one of our strengths, that uh, we've all got inquiring minds and we all want evidence, but, you know, we do come from the, the, the difference between management and, and science is really interesting, and it's a great combination. Yep. Mike, we lost one of those legends recently in Neil Clark. Um, I think his service was only last week. How do you reflect on Neil and his contribution to the industry over his career? Yeah, Neil was was great at bringing people together. He took the concept of farmer groups, which had been going in the dairy industry for a long time, took that concept of farmer groups and and really made it work uh, in the broader industries in livestock and cropping. Firstly, with uh, uh, some groups that he had that uh, were run uh, supported by um, David Shearer, I think. Uh, then he, uh, together with uh, a fellow called Tim Hutchings, got a thing called Farm Facts uh, off and running. And and Nigel and I were regular contributors to Farm Facts. And then when Farm Facts was winding up, uh, the, the four of us uh, together with another dozen or so consultants started Farm Management 500. Now, none of that would have happened if Neil hadn't been the sort of person he was with an inquiring mind, a way of looking at doing things better and, and trying to bring people together, really good at bringing people together. And had all the time in the world for everyone that he touched. He was just an amazing man, wasn't he? Amazing. Yep, yep, yep. Farm Management 500 um, became a significant project, bringing analysis and benchmarking into broadacre farming across the Wimmera Mallee Southern Victoria and into New South Wales. How do you reflect on the contribution that it had, Mike? Oh, I think people talk, it became Farm 500. They left the management out. Uh, I, I think its uh, contribution was enormous. It, it, it not only did it um, uh, start to get people to think seriously about the management of their business from a from a management as distinct from a from a technical point of view, but it it uh, brought a whole lot of uh, farm women into uh, into focus that they hadn't had before. Um, it, uh, it it showed the power of of teams within farming families. Um, it was the genesis of the. National Bank uh, farm planning books that were almost aerial dropped to people. Um, it was the genesis of some other books, uh, including There's a Life After Farming. Uh, it, it brought Rob Brown, Nigel and myself together to start doing books on succession. So, yeah, an enormous contribution. Thanks, Mike. So for you, why succession? What was it that when um, you, you've contributed so much to so many families um, in helping them be more aligned, um, build out high-performing teams, um, making strong decisions that drive performance on farms. Why did you choose to focus in so intently in your Churchill and, and then PhD on this important topic of succession? Well, it started when I was a young farm manager and and recently married and managing 7,000 acres of dirt in the Western District with a, 
a uh, team of, of uh, men and uh, an owner who was happy once I'd sat down and worked out what the budget was, well, worked out the development plan first because there was a lot of development that uh, uh, was waiting to happen. I uh, worked out a development plan, worked out a budget, and then the owner was uh, happy for me to implement that plan and that budget. And uh, people that I'd been at college with would come and stay the night and we'd drink too much rum and then the, the next morning uh, I'd do a, a, a bore run and that was usually meant 20, 25 gates. And so I was always keen to have a gate opener. And as we'd drive, driving around, I'd be talking about what we were doing and we're going to do this here, this uh, this paddock here is 1,000 acres, we're going to divide that up into into six of the 150 uh, laneways going in here and just talk about all of this stuff. And and, and these blokes would say, but, but, but I'm fighting with my father. So they were at home fighting with their father and I was just off, you know, doing, doing what I was paid to do. So I started to think about it then. Uh, when I hadn't been running, the, the business was probably three or four years old. I had a um, and at that stage, the employment agency was well and truly up and running. And a lawyer contacted me wanting to know if I could work out a salary backwards uh, where a, uh, a farmer, a, a, a brother, I'm oh, sorry, the brother-in-law, so two sisters owned the farm, and then one of the sisters decided to force the sale and her brother-in-law um, was been working for practically nothing and was going to be forced out. So I did that, uh, worked that out, and, and and we won the case. And then I started to seriously think about uh, the need to try and avoid those situations. So, yeah, just started to get more and more involved in it. The PhD point of view, I, I, I took that on because I was concerned that everybody was talking about succession in Broadacre Farms, as though succession of a successful business was a reality. And the, the, and the real, I suspected, I didn't have the figures then, but I suspected that the reality in many businesses was that it wouldn't be possible because they, that they weren't viable now, so they weren't going to be able to be viable later. And the... The, the, the figures that uh, uh, I started to get, I, I dug into ABARE figures, and in preparation for today, I got, I got the latest figures just very recently looking at the 21-22 figures from, from ABARE. And even now, with all the increased prices that we've seen, 55% of the 49,000 broadacre farms, 55% have a gross farm income of $400,000 or less. $400,000 gross farm income, Jeremy, you and, and your people at the, you know, you, you members at the academy will know that if it's $400,000 gross, you know, if, if it was 20%, of, of that was the salary equivalent. So you're talking about $80,000. That's absolutely top mm. would be the salary equivalent of those farms. And 
47% of them are below 300,000. So the, and, and the figures weren't as good as that eight years ago or 10 years ago when I started the PhD, they were considerably less. But anyway, they're the, they're the figures today. So the reality is that for probably, you know, 35% of the 50,000 broadacre farms, succession is financially possible if all of the other things line up. So deal with the finance, see if it's financially possible, and then uh, if it is, look at all the other things. So that then took me into a discussion with uh, a fellow that you had a bit to do with at Melbourne Uni, Bill Malcolm. <laughs> Bill said there's a PhD in this. I said, well, don't talk to me about a PhD. I have another leaving, so I'm not going to do a PhD. Anyway, um, so, uh, yes, anyway, he was pretty convincing. And so what we did was to um, firstly uh, do some farmer surveys, about 50, 50 farmer surveys, and then with, with about 40 professionals that I knew, we surveyed them about the businesses that they dealt with. So we looked inside through those uh, professionals that I deal with, we looked inside 6,300 businesses to find out where those 6,300 broadacre businesses stood in relation to succession. And what we found was that most of them don't have a succession plan and most of them will not develop a succession plan. And they don't have a succession plan and won't develop one. One, because they're too small. That's 30, you know, whatever percentage it is. Two, I am a farmer. I am what I do. If I stop doing what I do, there'll be nothing left. I've got no other great interest, so I'm going to die with my boots on, so I'm not going to hand over to anybody else. That's the second reason. The third reason, I'm worried that the outlaw will take half of it. And whether that's the female outlaw or the male outlaw, I'll come in and end up taking half in some matrimonial dispute. The next one is I'm worried that the next generation will squander it. They don't know as much as I do about this farm. They won't do it properly. And the final one is not being able to find a, a, a comfortable spot between two extremes. And those, ex those extremes are in dealing with the subject of fair, equitable, equal. And at one extreme, farmer gets what farmer needs and the other children get what's left over. And at the other extreme, you say, we're going to divide the eventual distribution of the family assets equally amongst the children, and the farmer's got to put up with it. And most families have real difficulty in working their way through that. They had real difficulty with it 10 years ago, and as land values have gone up and up and up, and the proportion of the family 
assets which are involved in land, the percentage has got higher and higher, that is becoming more difficult. So 10 years ago, you might have been talking 70-30, 70% on farms, 30% off. Uh, for somebody who'd been really careful and putting money to one side, now that same person, it'll be 85-15 or 90-10. So that's making it much harder. So that was, that was the, uh, uh, what we found out from, from talking to the professionals. Uh, we then went ahead and did 16 case studies, eight of farms that will continue and eight of farms that won't. And they were sort of in bands from about $3 million in capital at the bottom to 160 million at the top, family farms. Um, and they were sort of in pairs of ones that will keep going and ones that won't keep going. And then we contrasted what are the difference between the ones that will keep going and won't keep going. And then we realized that because they'd been chosen as they're either going to keep going or not keep going, there was no statistical. Uh, information in that. So I analysed 100 client records. I can't actually say at random because they're, because they're client records. So it's not a random sample, but we, we analysed 100 client records in order to, to test where they stood in relation to what we'd identified as three main aims, and that there had actually been three main aims of family farming identified in, in previous research, uh, and they were funds for retirement um, to uh, have a viable farm and to have a, a family that were happy with the result. So that was the sort of process uh, we went through, and, um, yeah, then there was a business of writing it up and having some examiners look at it and they gave it a tick and off you go. It's incredible to hear, Mike. Um, has anything of that scale been done before anywhere in the world around succession? I don't think anybody would have looked at 6,300 farm businesses. Right. And to be fair, we looked at them through a window um, rather than you know having direct contact with them. But I don't. I don't think that would have been done before. No, I think. I think it's probably. Um, certainly, um, the examiners were happy that it was bringing something new to the table, which is sort of what's got to happen with a PhD. Congratulations, Mike! It's amazing. So, of those reasons why succession doesn't happen, scale and other, is that okay? Do you reflect on it as now as an, a consultant? Two farming families. Is it okay that that is the reality, or does the, how, how does that how do you feel about that? Well, no, I think I think the the the, the important thing there is that there are uh, there are strategies for each of those things that we talked about. There are strategies that people can do. So, for instance, um, the farm doesn't have enough scale. Well. If, if you start off um, when, you, when you first start farming and start a family and you start off understanding 
that you that you want to have su- uh, succession, you will build scale. So previous research said you've got to have scale to have succession. My research says the reason people go ahead and build the scale is because they've decided they want to have succession. So it turns it on its head. Now, if you're going to have scale, you've got to, it's it's a long, long road. You know, it's a 25 or 30 year road. So for that first one, um, if somebody says when the kids are young, it's too it's too early to start a succession plan. That might be true, but it isn't too early to start planning for succession. So we can't say, here's the plan, this this child's going to do this, this, blah, 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 that's what's going to happen. But we can plan for the fact that we know we're going to need to do something about it and and, and try and build the resources. In terms of of, of the second one, I am what I do, if people recognise that, uh, they can start to maybe make room for somebody in the business to do some of what they do so that they don't have to just stop, nor do they have to be sent off to play bowls or golf or fish if they, if they want to remain uh, working. If they, if they start to think about that and, and plan that, they can do something about that. The, 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 the outlaw is going to steal it all. Um, there are firewalls that can be put in place to make that more difficult. The next generation is going to squander it. Well, if you prepared the next generation and got them sufficiently trained, that's not going to happen. And the, and the last one of the fair, equitable, equal, if you start to, rather than uh, waiting until the non-farmers in the next generation are in their mid-50s to be leaving something in their will, we find that if if uh, farming families talk to the non-farming children when they're in their 25 to 35 sort of age group and say, we want the farm to stay in the family, that means the farmers are going to get the lion's share. What about we give you a we, – we, we, we hand over some assets to the farmer so the farmer can borrow – and starts to buy you out now. So you will get less, but you'll get it now, you know, age 30. You know, and now, and it might be a couple of million dollars. Really get yourself set up, get your business going, get your house in town, whatever it is. So by, by bringing forward the payment to the non-farming children, you can use not present, not net present value, future value calculations. You can do it by the seat of your pants, whatever. Um, but you can usually get people to accept that a, uh, a a lesser amount is going to be really acceptable if it's much sooner. So all of that's, you know, well, they're, they're the strategies we use. Mike, I think it was Kane et al. in the paper that you've written that I've read. Um, who came up with those three rules for what succession needs to achieve. So just those again for our listeners, a successful retirement for the older generation, a viable yes, fund. funds. I think, I think funds to allow retirement. So you may or may not retire, but you're not going to be 
dependent on the farm for your income. So sufficient funds to be able to retire, a viable farm for the person who's going to take it over. And that that might mean they've got to take on quite a bit of debt, but that's okay. And and happy family. And happy family refers to your comment just there around fair and equitable for non-farm children. Yep. 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 Now, Jeremy, there are other so so that sort of answers that question. But the other thing that 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 came out really strongly from the 116 um, uh, that we did, the 16 in depth and the 100 historical records. And remember, of the 16 in depth, eight of them were not going to be continuing. They'd been chosen for that. But of the ones that did continue to the fourth generation, 100%, lovely number that, well, it means all of them, 100% gave control to the next generation at a young age. And a young age was by 35. Now, that wasn't full ownership, here are the titles, but a high level of control. 93% had set growth goals to enable succession, which is what I was talking about before. You know, so yeah. all the old stuff is, oh, you know, you, 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 uh, you, you've got to have, uh, you know, you won't, you, you won't get succession without scale. So, you know, we, we found the reason you get scale is because you want succession. There's a real mindset piece on that one, Mike, that if I am running my farm with a view to not squander it or not lose it, um, I won't, but I might not grow it. But it, it comes down to that comment you made about a real determination of the leaders of the farm to grow in order to achieve scale for succession. It's a real mindset piece, isn't it? Oh, absolutely. And in fact, uh, in one of the case studies of the farm that won't continue as a as a viable farm, um, it was the, uh, the the mindset that we're not going to sell land on my watch. Uh, fifth generation farm, I'm not going to sell land on my watch. So rather than taking any risk. Um, the, the 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 lands remained in the family, but it's now cut up so much that it's no longer viable uh, because the the farmer was absolutely determined that he was not going to take a risk that would lose any of the land. And that's paired off with another one that started off uh, much later. It's only the third generation, I think. No, it must be the fourth generation now. Um where where the 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 where, where that farmer grew deliberately uh, grew the farm deliberately to allow succession. I mean the the other classic was two farms in the in the central west of New South Wales, uh, a pair there where and these farms are totally unrelated except for the way I paired them, um, and 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 that pair. Two brothers worked out that they would grow as much as they could and and go for about twenty five years and then uh, if they if they needed to split it they could and the other pair of brothers decided to just grow it 
the pair that decided to grow it so it could be split claimed that it took them one hour for the brothers to sort out what the split would be. Took the lawyers and the accountants a while, but for the brothers to agree on this is where it's all going to go, one hour. Contrast that with the other pair where the brothers went through uh, 12 succession planners and eventually a liquidation sale in order to split it up. What's the difference there? I feel like there's a fear. If I'm leading a farm business and I'm fearful of losing that that I've inherited um, versus I'm going to stand on what I'm fortunate enough to have and go after growth for future generations, um, how do you reflect on the difference between that, that pairing that you just spoke of? Well, I mean, again, there's some there's some some figures there. I mean, in the things that came out of it, 68% had families where siblings worked together to grow and then split the business. So, so here we are. The olds are saying, "Well, we're going to do something about succession." So, so the next generation says, "Good, I'll take my bet." Or the next generation says, "Well, actually, we know we've got to grow it. If we keep this chunk of capital intact." We'll be able to grow it, but let's be realistic. You know, the, the 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 chances of our children wanting to work together are pretty slim. So let's let's go for it now. That'll mean we'll put up with a bit. You know, we'll, some things that will happen that we don't quite like. But here's the end goal: we're going to we're going to really grow this, so we turn it into two businesses. Yeah, great. So yeah, that's that's a that's a real mindset. Planning to to grow and then split, but having that split as part of the plan. Um, that's right, that's right. What and I found really interesting in what you wrote, um, Mike, was that rarely do siblings and cousins or still cousins work well together and survive succession. Is that, a, is that a fair comment? Moving from siblings to cousins is a whole new ball game. And there are there are some examples in Australian agriculture and and there, you know, other examples. You know, the Smorgan family is is yeah, comes to mind straight away. The Meyer family, you know, some of those big big family uh, outfits. But but it's yeah, it's hard enough for siblings. But, but Jeremy, get just just forget about farming for a minute and think about people. So siblings grow up, and your allegiance is to your family of origin. Then the siblings start to pair up with their life partner and their primary allegiance is to that new partnership, life partnership. That's where the primary allegiance is. And, and you really wouldn't want to have it any other way that here I am, I've hooked up with my life partner. But really, if push comes to shove, my family of origin is going to be more important. That's going to end up with a pretty short relationship. So it's a, it, it is it's a it's a natural sequence of events that people outgrow the, or grow away from the family of origin as they start to develop their own nuclear family. So that's hard enough to manage for siblings. If you start to do it with cousins. It becomes much more difficult. Now, where it, where it can work is if there's sufficient um, resources 
if the non-farming family members have got sufficient resources to be quite happy that their capital is sitting there just sort of ticking away and they're not dependent on it. And the, and the outfit is of sufficient scale to allow individuals, uh, the, 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 the individual cousins, room to be able to take on an area, whether it's a physical area or whether it's the enterprise, you look after the sheep, I look after the cattle, he looks after the crop, she looks after the horticulture, whatever. Um, so if you've got that sort of scale, then it's a chance of working. But on the, you know, on the on the average sort of family farm, you know, up to a couple of thousand hectares, it, very difficult. The other things that I found really interesting in your paper, Mike, was that history matters. Would you mind speaking to that? So where there's a history of smooth succession, uh, there are some footprints there about how to go about it. There are some, uh, uh, there's, yeah, there's a, there's, there's a way of doing things. There's an understanding then from the older generation that this is what we did, uh, you know, this worked. Uh, so, yeah, let's let's try and repeat that. I mean, we, if it, it, it works in reverse a bit too, that if it's been a really, that, that some people who have been refugees from a really bad succession will make sure that's avoided. Um, but more often than not, they fall into the same trap. Interesting, isn't it? I wonder if there's a precedent of respect and professionalism um, that that helps the next generation consider succession. You know, they've learned how to do it well from from their forefathers. Yeah, I I I, I think there is. I think, and and there are, and I won't name them, but there are some notable families in Australian agriculture where you know they they get it sorted. Everybody knows what the rules are. The non-farmers are dealt with well. Um, yeah, there's there's a set of principles that have been laid down, and and they go on adhering to those principles. Mike, the other thing that really interested me was the relevance. It seemed like that for those that had succeeded beyond the third generation, that that off-farm income and or establishing a new on-farm business. Um, had a had a place often. Uh, yes, so if you want to start to get more than one family living off the farm, um, you better make sure you've got a whole lot of different income streams. I mean, I mean, the as interesting as that, I think Jeremy is that that out of that um, hundred and sixteen, eighty three percent had a staged approach. Um, where and, and this is particularly with livestock, they'd increase their livestock numbers way beyond what they could manage, lease country um, to carry the extra livestock. Sometimes when you have a look at the cost of the lease, you might say, gee, that's a fairly dubious proposition. But they didn't pay the tax on the livestock they didn't sell. Um, and when they when they went to buy land and stock it, they had, because they owned the livestock, 
they had a third of the capital they needed for land and livestock. So that sort of staged approach of, you know, breed up, breed up, breed up, got too many, find somewhere to lease them, right, I got the lease place full, okay, now there's some land coming up for sale. That stage approach was used by 88%. Yeah, so it's a really a proactive approach rather than a reactive approach to growth yeah. because, you know, yeah. not being ready to buy the block next door, buying the block next door and then having to, you know, take on debt to buy livestock. I mean, that's that's a tough road, isn't it? That's right, yeah, yeah. Mm. But already having the livestock is a, is a um, great help. Mike, you mentioned fair and equitable for off-farm children. I'd, I'd love to understand, you know, in those two ends of the spectrum that you spoke of, what is your process now at Meridian in how you help families through succession and, and what is your um, approach to helping people find the balance of, of fair and equitable? So we start off with what the parents want to see happen and then we talk to each of the children and we talk to the children on a confidential basis uh, and we report back to them what we believe we can take from that conversation and put on the family table. When we talk to the parents, we are, as well as finding out what they want to see happen, we ask them whether they would choose to be in business with any of their children. You're looking for a business partner. Would you choose any of these children? And we ask the same thing of the children. Would you, you know, would you choose to be in business with your siblings? And if the answer is no, you wouldn't choose to be, well, do you think you can make it work to be in business with your siblings? And, and sometimes we find out the answer is no, and all that comes as a shock to parents. Uh, it's not a bad idea to find out before they get it welded together. So. We start off on that matter of choice, and then the next the next question for everybody in the family is where do you stand on that continuum? A farmer gets what farmer needs, and everybody else puts up uh, puts up with it, or uh, it's it's um, divided equally amongst the children, and the farmer puts up with it. So where do you stand on that continuum? And we ask everybody that. And very few people are brazen enough to put themselves at one end or the other. Most people will drift sort of towards the centre a bit. So it starts to give you some room for how you can start to piece things together, um, particularly working on the fact that, you know, it's this is going to be... In almost every situation, if you want the farm to continue in the family, uh, it, it is not going to be an even distribution unless you have non-farming children owning land. And if you can avoid non-farming children owning land, you should, because all you're doing is kicking the problem down the road. And the worst thing you can do is to have non-farming children owning land as in joint ownership, tenants in common, uh, that sort of arrangement, because there you've got them welded together in a situation which is really difficult to get out of. And recently with capital gains tax, um, as it is, um, we've got an example now where 
where the farm's going to have to be sold because one person wants some money out and there's no way of breaking it up. The capital gains tax is going to kill them. Um, yeah, so you know, avoid, try and avoid joint ownership of indivisible assets. And, and oh, so I should add there that it's really easy for um, uh, an advisor who, who we're stuck with this problem. You know, we've, we've only got, you know, we've got 70% go to the farmer and 30% go to the other two kids, only 15 each. How can we even it up? Oh, well, we'll give them some land. It's so easy. It's so easy to do that. Um but it's it's walking around the problem. Yeah. How different is it given what we've seen with land value increase, that fair and equitable piece? You touched on this before, Mark, but how much more difficult is it now compared to where it was five years ago? Oh, it, it's it's a new order of magnitude because because whereas before you could you could say, yeah, look, they might be getting yeah, they might be getting twice as much, but that's what they need in order to make a living. And blah blah. Yeah, look, yeah, I'm happy. Now it's 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 so much more stark than that. It's so much, um, you know, it's it's so much more lopsided. It is much more difficult. And just on that, when you do interview those individual family members, the next the off farm children. Giving them that opportunity early, um, even if it's well less than half of or a third of or a quarter of what the farm child might get, is that is that becoming a really significant solution in this? Yeah, yeah very, very significant solution. Um, there are some things that people need to do if they're going to do that, though, and that is to make sure that they've got a very tight deed of family agreement and 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 also to make sure that each of the signatories of that deed have had independent legal advice which ensures that they understood what they were signing um because we've seen a few cases already where uh, people had said yeah that's okay they'd signed up to the farmer getting more and now, with the increase in land values, they're having second thoughts. So, if if there's a really tight deed, and and somebody's signed up that they understood the deed, if they then want to bring legal legal proceedings, they can try. But it the firewalls are pretty um, pretty thick, and it is it is unlikely that they would get through them. Thanks, Mike. So, Mike, with all of this and with your research, what advice would you have for the older generation, the younger generation, the off-farm children, those outlaws that you mentioned? You know, what advice would you have for people? Well, we'll start off um, um, being clear about what it is that you'd like to see happen. Uh, you may not, you may not all get what you want, but let's be clear about what you would like to see happen. Under, you know, the good book says understand the needs and wants and aspirations of each family member and each generation, and that hasn't changed. What would you like to see happen? 
then I think the, uh, the, the, the next thing is don't worry too much about the how until that what is very clear. And the what has to be from talking to all family members and surprise, surprise, Jeremy, I think people are better are better to get somebody from outside the family to do that, can be a family friend, can be a professional that works with them, but you may not get a straight answer if you if family members ask, ask that question. If the older generation want the farm to stay in the family, then there will, in most cases, be some compromises that are going to need to be made. So if the older generation wants the farm to stay in the family and wants the eventual distribution of their assets to be absolutely equal and 80% of the assets are in the farm and they've got four children, call in a tooth fairy because it's not realistic. So our role, first of all, is to make sure that the test of realism is put over. And I've got a, a big syringe, one of those ones used for streptopen and cattle with realism embossed on the side of it. Um, so, yeah, let's make sure that, that, uh, that the aims are realistic. Then the question is where the compromises might be. And one of the ways you can have less compromise is for the non-farmers to get assets early. And one of the ways to do that is to hand the ownership, ownership of some assets. And this is, again, you've got to work through capital gains tax here, so don't get too worried about the how at this stage, but, but to hand over some assets to the younger generation so that the younger generation can borrow to buy out the non-farming members from land so that the younger generation, the, the non-farmers and the younger generation start to get their payout earlier rather than later. And that's being done on a net present value, future value, or by this is the best we can do or whatever. So they're the, they're the, the they're the questions that people have got to work through. Uh, when we're talking to non-farmers, the, the, we, we ask them that question, you know, what do you think about that principle? Uh, that uh, you might be able to get an earlier payout, but it'll be less. Um, it's not up to us or any advisor to say what that should be. That's up to the, for the family to agree. But when they start to see those tools, we can often find agreement there. It makes sense because if if I'm in Melbourne or Sydney or Adelaide or wherever and I can put a dent in a home loan and some investments away and and then enjoy the benefit of time on those assets, then over time those off-farm assets given early can grow to be you know, close to perhaps what they might have got in an equal split example. Well, yes, no. if, yes, if they've got the equal split at the time of the parent's death and that's in another 10 years and farmland goes on going up the way it's gone on, um, 
you know that yeah they would have had more money to to be in the in the farmland if it, if we look at if we look at farmland traditionally over the over the longer term it hasn't hasn't always performed the way it's performed in the last 20 years but um but you know it is what it is at the moment and uh, yeah if the if the parents have got that strong desire to keep the farm and the family and they're doing this while they're alive and everybody understands that that's their wishes and this is being done with the guiding hand of the parent on the wheel, um, you've got a much better chance of pulling it off than if they try and do it by their will. Thanks, Mike. Mindful of time, one more question if I could. Yep. Of all the individuals that you've met and included in your research piece, is there one example that, stands out for you as succession done impeccably or well? Is there an outlier in this that is worth understanding and can we learn from them? Oh, there's a couple. I mean, there's one There's one where, where they were so uh, apprehensive about the whole thing that they were hardly able, between father and son, that they're hardly able to broach the subject and and we worked through the hard part in about two hours, um, and and you know because they were dancing at shadows that weren't there. Uh, there's another of brothers where their parents were really uh, concerned, fair lump of a place, and and all the homestead and all the infrastructure was sort of all tucked together, and so somebody was going to get all of that. And the other brother wasn't going to get all of that. And the parents were really churned up about it. And eventually they had the courage to talk to their sons about it. And the boys said, it's all right, we've started it out, we're going to toss through it. Done. Um, um, I, th- I think, um, yeah, I mean, certainly um, e- examples where we've used that heavy borrowing quite heavy borrowing to buy out a couple of brothers that have allowed them to go ahead um, and 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 build their own businesses I've uh, got got the, the 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 farmer son in that outfit is is sort of happy to get on a platform and say what a good job it was so yes those of, of that principle um, Yeah, a few of those. Right. Thank you, Mike. Thousands of people, farming families from across Australia listen to this podcast, Mike, which is something I'm proud of. And so it gives me a, a real privilege for me to, to say, you know, this is a lifetime of work of yours. And I just want to say thank you and congratulations. I just think the depth of this research, the insights that we've touched on, um, and the impact that you've had specifically on those families that you've worked with personally, but the Meridian Ag team and the work they do and, you know, the impact that this research that you've done, um, the impact that that will have on our industry and and so many hundreds and thousands of farming families. Um, Sincerely, congratulations and thank you. Thanks, Jeremy. Great to talk. Great to be on your podcast. Thank you for having me.
Great to connect, Mike. Thanks so much for your time. My regards to Joe and your men, and um, thank you again for your time. Good on you. Thanks, Jerry. Thanks for listening to another episode of the Profitable Farmer podcast by Farm Owners Academy. If you're new to this show, be sure to follow us. If you've been a long-time listener, let your friends know about us or come continue the conversation in the Profitable Farmer Facebook group. All the best as you grow your business and create your freedom farm. Until next time, keep being incredible.